please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9. to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Thus is the reading of the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would incline our hearts and our ears to you, that we would hear your word, that we would understand it, and that you would increase our joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at the words of the apostle Peter here. And Peter wrote this epistle during a time of great, intense, increasing persecution of the early Christians. Now, the early church faced many trials and challenges which would have consumed them, would have destroyed them if it wasn't for God's preserving hand over his church. From within, the the apostles and, and the elders of the churches fought against early heresies of, of legalism and of Gnosticism and, and many more. The, these early teachings would have led many astray from the truth and would have made Christ of no benefit to the hearers. But outside of the walls of the church, not just inside, increasing persecution towards Christians was on the rise. Now, at first, these early Christians weren't as widely persecuted because they were seen by the, the Roman rulers as this sort of, this, this offshoot of, of Judaism. It was just this, this sect of, of Judaism. And Judaism was tolerated, uh, was a tolerated religion in the, in the Roman Empire, not not because Rome deemed it a, a true religion, the, the true religion, anything like that, but it was because of really the obstinance of the Jews and of the strict adherence of true monotheism. 
it, it was much easier for them to just allow the, the Jews to keep practicing their own religion than to try to make them synchronize with the religions of the Roman world. But as it became more and more clear that this Christianity was truly different from Judaism, and that, that difference is the Messiah, the, the coming Messiah who has taken, the, taken away the sins of the world, once this distinction became apparent, Rome began persecuting Christians. And they tried to get them to recant the faith, to recant Christ, and to join the pagan worship of Rome. At this time, Peter writes this epistle. And it's, it's roughly around 62 to 64 A.D., there was a, a wicked emperor named Nero who had been sitting on the Roman throne for quite some time. And around the time of this writing, a great fire broke out in Rome, and it nearly burned the whole city to the ground. Now, now Rome was this great, magnificent city, and you have this sadistic emperor Nero who's on the throne, and this fire breaks out. And it, it almost burns down the whole place. It's said that thousands had died in the, in the flames of this fire, either by the fire itself or suffocation of smoke or the collapsing buildings around them. It truly was a terrible tragedy that, that happened. Now, there is some speculation on how the, the fire started. Some reports claim that it was Nero who started the fire, most likely accidentally, although he was quite sadistic. But he was by no means going to take the fall for it. Well, since Christians were already becoming highly suspect at this time, he blamed them for the fire, and then he started a mass persecution of Christians. Now, the Fox's Book of Martyrs records this cruelty of Nero toward our early forefathers of the faith. Now listen, it says of this early persecution, what our forefathers endured during the time of this writing. It says, the, the dreadful flame continued nine days when Nero, finding that his conduct was greatly blamed and a severe odium cast upon him, determined to lay the whole account upon the Christians at once to excuse himself and to have opportunity, opportunity of glutting his sight with new cruelties. This was the occasion of the first persecution and the barbarous way that it was exercised on the Christians were such that it even exercised the sympathy of the Romans themselves. He says, Nero even refined upon cruelty contrived all manner of punishments for the Christians that the most infernal imagination could design. In particular, he had some sewn up in skins of wild beasts, and then they were worried by dogs until they died. And others dressed in shirts made stiff with wax, fixed with axle trees, 
and set on fire to light his garden in order to illuminate it. It says this persecution was general throughout the whole Roman Empire. But listen, it did not decrease the faith of the Christians. It increased rather than diminished the spirit of Christianity. It's within this context that Peter wrote to the believers who were scattered abroad, knowing that the trials that they would soon face, that they would be able to withstand and endure the coming persecution. And the main emphasis that I want to draw out of this portion of Scripture this morning is that you now, in every trial that you face, and me, can have joy in the midst of those trials, whether those trials consist of persecution, sickness, the loss of those whom you love, the loss of everything that you have in this world, as Job did. Whatever the case may be in your life, you as a believer in Jesus Christ may have joy. But not only that you can have joys when trials come upon you, but when you encounter those trials, you're joyous that you have them. It's as if, it's as James said in, in chapter 1 of his epistle, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now notice what he says there. He says that you consider it joy when trials come upon you. That seems absurd to us at times, doesn't it? To think, here's another trial for me to endure. This makes me joyful. This is what he says. So looking at our text this morning, I want to call your attention to two statements made here by Peter. First is in verse 6. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. So we're going to look at what Peter is talking about. But also in verse 8, Peter says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of joy. Now that's quite a statement of joy, isn't it? Peter describes the experience of the believer, our experience as one of joy. And think again who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians in peril. Christians being set on fire, chased by animals, tortured. And he says to them, you can have joy. He says to us, we can have joy. So what is joy? When we think of joy, what, what is joy? What comes to your mind when you think of joy? It's probably for a lot of us, it's, it's a synonym for happiness, right? That we think, okay, joy means happiness. Well, it's important to understand what joy is because one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. And the word joy appears some close to 200 times in Scripture. The prophet Isaiah said of the people who were who are ransomed by the Lord in Isaiah 35.10, he says, They will come to Zion with singing, and everlasting joy shall be on their heads. In the New Testament, 
As I just said, joy is listed second in the, the description of those who are, are born by God and given the, the fruits of the Spirit there in Galatians 5.22. The text says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so forth. Joy is foundational. So it's clear here that joy is to be a central fruit in the life of a believer. But what is it? Well, true abiding joy is an inner gladness and delight within the believer that is unshakable despite circumstances going on around you. It is an inner sense of, of peace that is wrought by the Spirit that, that really fans the flames of, of hope in the darkness. Think about this. It is so foundational to our life that our shorter catechism, the very first question, says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that, that word enjoy means to, to make joy or to have joy or to even give joy. We are to have this, this inner gladness and, and delight in the one who has created us and in the one who has saved us from our sins. That, that is what joy is, and we are to enjoy God as Christians. It is that foundational. So looking at our text this morning, I want you to see three things. First, in verses 3 through 5, you have the, the source of joy. Where does our joy come from? And then in, in verses 6 through 7, you have joy magnified in trials. And then in verses 8 through 9, you have what I call the, the anchor for joy. And that anchor for joy is the person of Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning, as we go through this, is this a description of you? Do you see this fruit in your life? Is your life marked by great and abiding joy despite the circumstances you are in? So turning now to, to our text, I want to see the, the source of joy, starting there in, in verse 3, if you look at that, please. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, that is one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. The source of joy for the Christian is found in the saving and preserving power of God by the work of Jesus Christ, which is applied by the Spirit. That is to say, the source of our joy is the triune God. He is the source of our joy. The basis, the foundation, and the source of our joy really is rooted in the gospel message. And Peter begins here by, by way of, of praise and, and adoration to God for his great mercy, for God's great mercy that has been demonstrated through the Son, Jesus. And he really begins as we should always begin, which is for the, the praise of the marvelous salvation that has been given freely to us. And it is here that we find the bedrock, the foundation, the source 
of our joy. It is in the redemptive work of the triune God. This praise of Peter is, is brought about because of this great mercy that God has shown. It is that mercy that has caused us to be born again. And he says here that it was according to his great mercy that we have been born again. So the, the foundation from which regeneration flows and all other spiritual blessings flow come from one source, come from the same source. It is not of ourselves. It is of God. He has caused us to be born again. It is not of our works, but of his works. It is not of our merit, but of his grace. Apart from his abundant mercy, beloved, we have nothing. And it is this great mercy. This is the same language that, that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 verse 4 where he talks about the, the absolute deadness of men who are, who are in their sins and in their trespasses and, and they are condemned before God. But it was, it was God in, those, in that passage there who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. He has made us alive in Christ. So both Peter and Paul are expressing the, the bountiful kindness that the Lord has shown us, what the Lord has given to us. And it is within that mercy that we have been born again to a living hope. When Peter uses the word hope here, I don't want you to accidentally or inadvertently think of the word uncertainty, which we often do when we think of something we say hope, we often think of uncertainty. That, that it's, it's something, it's like, man, I hope this works out for me. It may not, but I, I hope it does. It's, it's kind of this uncertain wanting. That's typically how we think of, of the word hope. But really, that isn't hope. That is uncertainty. That is not knowing the future, not knowing if something will work out or will not work out. That isn't hope. Peter says that this, what you have been given, is a living hope. Hope, this kind of hope, is built upon fact and built upon promise. Fact and promise. The fact that God is, that God cannot lie, and the promise that he will do what he says he will do. That is a living hope. This type of hope mentioned here by Peter is, is living, it's, it's full of life, it's, it's abundant in life. It's an abundant hope. And it's something that is as sure as God is. This hope that he's talking about, it is as factual as God is. It is a living hope. And really, this type of hope is to be contrasted with vain hope which is what we once had in our own works or in something other than Christ. And if you've talked to anyone who's not a Christian, you've, you've, heard, you've talked to them and you've said, well, okay, do you think your works can get you into heaven? And they may say, I hope, I've, I've done enough, I, I, hope I, I hope I can. Well, that hope really is the uncertain hope. 
It is uncertainty that you don't know. You, you hope it works out, but you don't know. But that is foreign from living hope, which is what you have here in this text. It is a different type of hope. That type of hope is a dead hope. But we have been born again. We are no longer children of wrath, but now children of God. And because we are now children of God, we are born again into a living hope, a hope that is, that is certain, that is, that is full of life, that is abounding, that is so sure that it cannot be otherwise. That is the type of hope. And that hope, Peter says, has come through the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ from the dead. The ground or the foundation of our hope is the resurrection of Christ. Now, Matthew Henry says of, of this hope in the resurrection that it is the fact of the Father as the judge and of the Son as the conqueror. That is the hope, the fact that God is judge and that Jesus is conqueror, that he did conquer. It is the sign that, that the Son has discharged our debt and has ransomed us, and that he, Jesus, is victorious over death and the grave, and he assures us by his resurrection. That is the way of hope. The Apostle Paul was pretty explicit in 1 Corinthians 15 on the, the importance of the resurrection. On the resurrection of the dead, he says, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is also in vain. And he, and he goes on to say there in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. That's how important the resurrection of Jesus is. And his point is that, that if Christ has not been raised, if, if this is not something that is factual, is true, then his death did not ransom us from our sins. And that our faith would be a dead faith. And that we would not have a living hope, but we would have a, a dead hope, a dreadful hope. But Peter tells us here in our text that we do not have a dead hope. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Well, he continues here in verses 4 through 5. He says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it, it's through the resurrection of Christ that, that we have been born again to this new hope, this living hope that guarantees, it is the, the guarantee of the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, incorruptible, as his children, because we have been born of, of him, we are heirs to the riches of God. And those riches cannot be corrupted or defiled. 
That inheritance is eternal life. That is what is for you. And this is so important. Eternal life is given not as a wage. It isn't something that is earned. It is because you have been born again. And again, Peter emphasizes the fact that he has caused you to be born again. That you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. That this inheritance is guaranteed to you. It is an inheritance to adopted children, not a wage earned. Do you see that? You are not adopted into this family and then told, okay, now you're in the family. Okay, we got you in the family. But if you really want your inheritance, if you really want what I have for you, you must work for it. You now must earn my inheritance. That is not an inheritance. The inheritance here talked about by Peter is a gift from a father to a child and one of all grace. That it is not something that we earn, but it is freely given from a loving father. And he says of this inheritance that it has no flaws or, or imperfections, that it is a, a perfect inheritance. And there really is no higher gift that, that God could give us than what he has given us. There is nothing else that you could receive that is greater than what has already been given to you. This inheritance, this eternal life, it cannot spoil like the riches of this earth. And it's also not something that is hopeless to obtain. Peter says of this inheritance that it is laid up for you. That is, that it is safeguarded by the one who gives it. So not only is it God who gives it, it's God who safeguards it for you. It is out of reach from, from enemies, from, from being able to be snatched from you. Your reception of, of this inheritance that God has for you is as certain perfect and complete as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's as certain as it is. And it's through that resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that guarantees it for you. That it is a gift, a guaranteed gift for you. If you are of his fold, if you are of the flock of Christ... You have claim to eternal life, not by your merit, not by your works, but by the work of Jesus Christ through his resurrection. In your union with him, in your adoption into the family, you have claim to that inheritance. If you have believed in him, if you have believed in Christ, your, your entrance into heaven is certain. Certain, because of what Christ did for us. Because we have been born into a, a living hope, a, a, a sure hope. That we have been born into the family of God, and as his children, we are the inheritors of the riches of heaven, which is eternal life. That that is for you, given freely 
for you and to you. And this is the source of our joy. That, that inner gladness, that, that I, how I defined joy, that, that inner gladness, it, it, it is given by the Spirit. It really is birthed from above and it is given to us. And it comes by way of this union with Christ, that, that Christ bore our sins and that he has given us his righteousness and, and we are hidden in Christ. Dr. Sproul, when, when speaking on, on joy and speaking on the source of joy, said, The key to the Christian's joy is its source, which is the Lord. If Christ is in me and I am in him, that relationship is not a sometimes experience. The Christian is always in the Lord, and the Lord is always in the Christian. And that is always a reason for joy. This, this beautiful union brings forth great joy. Therefore, the, the inner gladness that, that we have, this, this joy, because it does not come from our trials or or circumstances, or, or tribulations, because it, it comes from above, it does not depend upon those trials and circumstances. Even when enduring the, the, the toughest of trials, the harshness uh, of this life, joy can remain. Our text says in, in verse 5 here, it says, Who are protected? That, that are those who are, are born of God. Those who have been saved will be preserved. It's not only that God safeguards the, the inheritance of eternal life for, for all those who believe, he, he safeguards those whom he has called out of darkness, those whom he sent his son to die for and to redeem. The Lord is the, the stronghold for the Christian. For those whom he called, he will protect. He is the, the defender and the, the preserver of his elect. And it is by his own power, which is invincible, limitless, inexhaustible. Look there, the text says, we are protected by the power of God. Well, how powerful is that? Indescribable. Can you think of anything that even compares to the strength of his might? Anything. Now this is why the, the Apostle Paul was so confident that, that nothing could separate us from the love of God. If it is the power of God that safeguards us, what other force can rival that? What can pluck us from his hand? Well, there is none. There is nothing. It's like taking a, a, a pea shooter to a, a nuclear warhead fight. It's, it's the absurdity of absurdities that, that something could actually separate us from the love of God if we have been born in him. What can separate us? If it is the power of God that protects us, what can separate us from the love of God? Uh, the text says that it is through faith that this is accomplished, leading unto salvation. Now, again, I need to, to emphasize here that Peter is teaching, uh, emphasize what Peter is teaching, 
because there is some confusion within the, the Reformed circles lately. Now read the text carefully. It says that who is it that saves? It is the triune God that saves. He has called us to be born again. He has given us an inheritance. He protects us and protects that inheritance for us. And he does so by his own power through faith unto salvation. Now let me ask, what, at what point does Peter say, God has saved you, so now it is up to you to maintain that? Or that God is now for you, but it will be your works that is the instrument to get me into heaven. Now he says, it is of God. It is because you have been born again by him into a living hope that your inheritance is secure and he will protect you and protect that inheritance. Now looking on to uh, point number two that I have is joy magnified in trials. So, so you have the, the bedrock, the, the source, the foundation of our joy. And now looking in verse 6, you're going to see that, that joy that is, that is tested here on earth. Peter says that in this you greatly rejoice, even, now, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here in verse 6, you, you have the statement, you have the, the first statement that I mentioned earlier. You have, in this you greatly rejoice. And he's really referring back to that source of joy with what we just talked about, which is the salvation of God, that that is the, the source and the, the bedrock, the foundation of our joy. But the link here is that the source of joy, the joy that, that gladdens the heart by the Spirit will sustain you in every trial that you face. It will sustain you. Now, it, it may sound somewhat paradoxical or perplexing, this, this idea that you can have joy and at the same time you have sorrow. And that you can be hopeful but at the same time suffer persecution or, or trials and sometimes suffer greatly. Now, this isn't to say that when you have been born of God, that God removes from you the ability to, to be able to have reactionary human emotions. You know, Christians can feel a tremendous amount of sorrow and fear. Christians can be fearful. For me, I, I'm terrified of heights. When God saved me, he didn't remove that fear of heights. I'm still terrified of heights. You will not see me on my roof. Becoming a Christian did not change that, that fear. We, we can be fearful in, in dangerous situations. We do experience the, the woes of this fallen world. But because the source of joy is God and not our situations because they don't derive from our circumstances, but of God, we can still have joy. And notice that Peter here says that we greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been distressed by various trials. So you have joyful or rejoicing, yet distressed. Joyful, yet distressed. In stress, but yet joyful. But here we really land upon a a different aspect of of joy. And in verses 3 through 5, Peter roots the source of joy in the work that God has already accomplished for us. It is rooted in that salvation that has been wrought for us. And he says that that the power of God is what safeguards that inheritance. So we have joy in that. We have joy in what God has done for us. But also, we have joy, especially in the midst of our trials, because it refines our faith and brings praise and glory to the one who has ransomed us. So Peter says, if necessary, that is, if it be God's will for you, to endure and be distressed by trials, that, that endurance, bearing in those moments, will bring praise and glory and honor to Jesus on that last day. Doesn't that help bearing trials a little more? Knowing that everything that you go through in this life will, will bring praise and glory and honor to the one who gave his life for you. Peter calls this the, the proof of faith. Now, some translations use the phrase the, the test of faith. That is, when your faith is, is tried. And for many throughout church history, that, that testing of faith could literally mean death, as we looked at earlier. Especially in the first few centuries of, of the New Testament church, it was, it was common for these Roman emperors to decree that if any man or woman be found out to be a Christian they were to be brought before the Roman magistrates where they would either recant Christ or be tortured and put to death. Being a Christian even now in many parts of the world is literally a death sentence. Not so much here for us now, but in many parts of the world it is a death sentence. But even here now, being a Christian can mean you're the laughingstock. Or you're the, you're the one stuck in his ways, or you're living in the past. But whatever trial that we face, it is purposeful. It has a purpose. Here, Peter says that it results in the glory of Christ, that the trials that you endure results in the glory of Christ, that it makes much of the Savior. But not only that, he says it also purifies us. He says of our faith that it is more precious than gold, but even gold which is perishable or corruptible is refined by fire. And really what he's doing here, he's arguing from from the lesser to the greater. Now gold has long been acknowledged to be one of the most precious metals on earth. It's been sought by countless civilizations throughout the centuries. And mainly because of its scarcity, its its beauty, that it actually has worth. That's why we call it a precious metal. It is precious. But when gold is first dug up, it is impure because it's, it's often mixed with other lesser metals such as silver or copper or other things. And really the purpose of refining that gold is to make it more pure. It's, it's to make it more gold, to take out the impurities and to leave the pure. 
And that's the purpose of, of refining it. And in Peter's usage here, gold is the lesser and faith is the greater. That even though gold is one of the most sought-after precious metals on earth, our faith is something that's greater than that. And if men see fit to refine gold so that it becomes more pure, how much more should our faith be refined by God? God cares more about us than he does gold. So why wouldn't he refine us? And he says here that gold is perishable. Gold is corruptible. But faith is not. Faith is imperishable and it's incorruptible. It's not something that can corrode. It's, it's something that is sure. And, and we, we consider gold to be precious because of, because of what it is. But how much more so, uh, precious is our faith than gold? Our faith is tried so that, that the excellency of it may be discovered and displayed, so that, that we may know the greatness of the gift that God has given to us and that people around us will know the greatness of the gift given to us. And just as gold is, is purified or, or refined by this fire, our faith is refined by fire, which, of course, is a, a metaphor for for trials, but ultimately, we're refined by God who sends those trials to purify us. Scripture tells us that he gives good to his children. Every trial that you face is for your good. So it's, it's within these, these trials that our joy, this inner gladness of heart, can be magnified, not diminished, you remember from Fox's Book of Martyrs when I, when I talked about all these persecutions these Christians would endure, but it did not diminish their faith. It increased it. Trials increased their joy because it magnified the source. And it is by these trials that we see that God is preserving us as he promised. When we endure a trial, when we persevere, we see God's preserving of us. Him keeping us. Now Paul had the same perspective of, of trials in Romans 5 when he says that we rejoice in our tribulations knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance. Now when was the last time that you rejoiced that your faith was being refined? I don't want to answer that. I'm not going to answer that. Or that you that you thanked God and took great joy in the fact that he has sent another trial for you to endure so that your faith would be tested and strengthened. We don't normally think that way. We typically think of trials as something that is a sore pain to us, and which it is, but we often can think that they can be without purpose. But they're not without purpose. They're to make us more like Christ. But what if we faced our own trials with, with this attitude, the attitude of Peter or, or Paul, knowing that God uses such trials to strengthen our faith, to make us more like Christ, but to also glorify, honor, and praise the Savior? Now, that doesn't mean that you go out looking for trials. You don't go out looking for persecution or 
looking to be maligned, anything like that. You don't seek it out so you can make much of your faith and much of Jesus. But when he calls you to trial, when he calls you to endure, can you be joyful? Can you rejoice? Can you thank God for the trial? If we are to endure trials, does it not give you joy that on the other side your faith will be stronger? That on the other side of this, though it hurts now, when this is over, my faith will be strengthened. Again, this is something that Paul knew very well. Paul suffered quite a bit, but he called his trials in this life momentary and light. Now think about that. Think of all the ways that the Apostle Paul suffered and the, the list of sufferings that he was beaten, that he was stoned, that all these things that he endured in this life. He says in, first, in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 through 18, for our light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He said everything that he endured was light and momentary. Why? Because he was looking toward the reward. He was looking toward the end. He took great joy knowing that the trials in his life were purposeful, and that they were producing for him an eternal weight of glory. His eye was on heaven. His eye was on heaven. In the midst of your trials, are you looking at the trial, or is your eye on heaven? Do you see, by comparison, the struggles of your trials versus the eternal weight of glory? Do you see Christ in his trials? Finally, point number three is the anchor of our joy, that is Jesus. Looking at verses eight and nine, it says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of joy, uh, glory, Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So the joy that we have that has been given by the Spirit is anchored in the person of Jesus. Not only is he the source, the foundation, the bedrock, the safeguard, he is the anchor of our joy. There were many at the time who were alive uh, during uh, the time of Jesus who had not seen him, they had just heard of him. And then they heard the gospel, and they believed the gospel. We too have not seen him, but we believe. We believe the gospel. And it is that belief that produces love and joy. Love and joy do not produce faith. 
You can't have love and joy for God and then faith arise out of love and joy. But faith produces love for him and joy in him. It is a gift of the Spirit. So you can't have the gift of the Spirit before you have the Spirit. To have joy is to have the Spirit, to have Christ, to have God as your Father. Faith in Christ isn't a, a cold or, or dry or dead type of faith. And Peter has already said that we are born again into a, a living hope. He didn't say a, a dry hope or a, a dead hope or anything like that, but it is, it is a hope that is joyful and that is enduring. And, and it comes with joy, and it's, it's anchored in the sun. And notice the way here that Peter speaks of, of joy in the second statement. He says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Think about that. You greatly rejoice, so there you have the uh, foundational word joy, in that you rejoice with joy, so in that you joy in joy, inexpressible. He, he tries, Peter tries to express his joy, the joy that you have as Christians, and he repeats himself. And he says it's really inexpressible. It, it's, it's not something that can explain. It's, it's such an abundant amount of joy. And, and this joy doesn't arise from anywhere else. It, it has no other source. It cannot be magnified in trials if it is not anchored in Jesus. This, this joy that he talks about is an otherworldly joy. It is almost an unspeakable joy. He can't get it out of his mouth how joyful this joy is. And that joy is anchored in Christ because he has secured our salvation. That is the joy we have. And it's in him, in Christ, that we place our faith, our hope, and our joy. Peter concludes our text this morning by reminding us that not only of the joy that we have because of what God has done for us, but the, the sure anticipation of the final reality of salvation. It is a, a sure anticipation. Again, it's not a, a hopeless or a, uh, an uncertain anticipation of salvation but it is a sure anticipation of the final reality of our salvation that is we we look to what one commentator called the crowning consummation and i love that phrase the crowning consummation the the final thing the the crowning achievement of god what he has done for us that is the the completion of our salvation we already have a title to it because of what Christ has done. We already have claim to it because of, because we have been adopted as, as sons and we will, we will receive a, a son's inheritance. And we even already have the, the first fruits of, of our faith. We have the, the fruit of the Spirit. But there is a consummation. There is an end goal, one which the Apostle Paul strained for so that he could finish well and be pleasing to the Lord and that he would receive, that he would see the reward of his faith. In this, Peter tells us that we find great joy, joy indescribable by looking toward the reward.
looking toward that final crowning consummation. Now, in closing, beloved, I chose this passage this morning so that you would see that you can have joy in Christ right now. That, that joy is not something that only comes at the crowning consummation when you see him. You can have joy now. You are adopted sons and daughters of the king. And that you would rejoice or have joy in the sure assurance, assurance and anticipation of the final outcome in your lives. That, that you would have joy in what is to come. And that, and that what is to come is as sure as God is. It's as sure as the fact of God and the promise of God is. That is what is for you. If we would but lay hold on this, I dare say we would not be the same. If we understood, if we could see as the apostle Paul saw, the joy that awaited us, I dare say we would say our trials are light and momentary. Though they be rough, they be worth it. God has given us a tremendous joy, one that is unspeakable, inexpressible, abundant. We must cultivate it by looking at what God has done for us and by looking to the reward, looking at what he has done and looking toward the reward that awaits all of us as Christians. What joy we could have if we thought of these things more. Even in the midst of our, our trials and hardships, we can have a deep and abiding joy. Our joy comes not from our circumstance, but is, is found in the salvation of the Lord freely given to us through the resurrection of the Son and the application of it by the Spirit. It really is a Trinitarian joy. What we have is a Trinitarian joy. That type of joy will sustain you through anything. Any trial that comes upon you, it will sustain you. And this, this Trinitarian joy is anchored in the person of Jesus. And that, that future glory that, that we will see him for who he is. That we will see the object of our faith. We will see the Savior, our everything, the one who laid his life down for us. What joy is there in that? Let us remember the, the exhortation of Hebrews 12. After describing to us those who have gone before us in the faith and who persevered to the end, the author writes in, in verse 12, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and the perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, so that we would not endure the consequences of our sin and misery. We also have joy set before us, beloved. 
Our joy is the person of Jesus. We have that joy now. I want to end with a, with a quote by uh, uh, Kim Riddlebacher, who, who wrote an article in Table Talk, and it was entitled Future Joy. And he said, Rejoicing in times of trial is not some meaningless religious ritual in which we focus on how we feel or in which we resolve to be brave. Instead, we are following an example set by Jesus in his own life, death, and resurrection. Suffering and trials give way to the resurrection of our bodies, future glory, and eternal life. Therefore, Christians can rejoice in the midst of suffering because of Jesus, who has secured and now guarantees a future joy for all those who he redeems. That is what's for you. It is in him, in Jesus, that we have joy and can rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, giving us this account of, 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 of Peter, exhorting us that, that we can have joy in the midst of the harshest of trials, not, not because of our circumstance, but because of, of the source, because joy comes from you, is safeguarded, by you, and is given freely to us. Father, we pray that you would increase our joy this morning so that we can endure, that we can run the races.